0: Welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Someru. Hey everybody, my guest this week is Ellington West, and she is the CEO and co-founder of Sonavi Labs. And Sonavi Labs creates Felix, which is a noise-cancelling, audio-enhancing, smart stethoscope which brings AI-powered technology into the hands of clinicians, health workers, patients, and parents alike. And they say Felix is just as simple as the stethoscope he used today, but a whole lot smarter. And you're gonna hear on this episode just how it improves the clinical workflow, enables research, facilitates telemedicine, helps with teaching, with chronic disease management, all sorts of cool and interesting stuff. Ellington herself was named one of the top 25 women to watch in healthcare so I hope you enjoy this episode everybody. So Ellington welcome to the health tech podcast how are you doing this morning very early morning for you in fact.
1: (laughs) I'm great I'm so happy to be here.
0: Excellent you say so happy we were just talking off air about how early I got you up for this which is what (laughs) time is it over there?
1: It is 5 12 a.m. 5 12 a.m. It, yeah, Amazing. Yeah. Bright
0: and early or not so bright and early. Um, <laughs> and whereabouts are you speaking to us from today?
1: Yeah Baltimore Maryland. I am looking over a frozen harbor as we speak. Oh,
0: that actually sounds wonderful. Yeah. Is, it, is it picturesque?
1: It is not cold enough to ice skate on ever, but okay. beautiful nonetheless.
0: <laughs> beautiful, but without that utility. But no, that's still a right. lot nicer than uh, than my view. A very overcast, grey, sorry, uh, in, the, uh, in the southeast <laughs> of England. But anyway, um, so listen, the way we start these podcasts is for you to tell your story. I know you've got a really interesting background. You're doing some super cool stuff with Sonavi Labs. Um, but I would like to know, yeah, all about your story and how you got here.
1: Yeah, it's a crazy story. I think that it all really hinges off of one person, who is my father. So a wow. little bit of background just about how I grew up. So my father, Dr. James West, he is the inventor of the electric microphone. So that's the microphone that I'm speaking oh to on goodness. right now. The microphone wow. and, you know, 90% of cell phones. And so growing up, you know, in Plainfield, New Jersey, the daughter of an African-American man who really reshaped um, telephony. And, and had such impact, but never um, did we see that the financial benefit, right, of such a, a, a contribution. So as I was growing up, I always thought, you know, scientists, they're just researchers, nothing really comes from this. It's all kind of, you know, a bunch of grown men playing in a sandbox. And yeah. this does not apply to me, you know. My father, in terms of respect and recognition, phenomenal. You know, going to the White House, he received the National Medal of Technology from President Bush. It was just such a powerful... Um, honor and in a moment in my life but when I put it in perspective to who I wanted to be and what I wanted, you know, I'm like, well, this isn't how you make money and this isn't how you're successful. Um, Not really recognizing at that time in my life, just the power of impact in general and what that means when you can really influence society instead of, you know, focusing on um, a bottom line to motivate you in life, right? So I took that uh, with me of not wanting to be a scientist right off to undergrad where i decided to study political science of all things you know (laughs) might as well point it and throw it all into um into politics and and so what i realized um while i was studying political science was just you know is this the understanding the way that people work, the psychology behind their motivations, was really interesting to me. And so I dove right in after undergrad into a market research firm where I really just learned or really actually honed my ability to identify the motivation in folks, right? And then I took that and applied it to really a sales background. So ultimately I made this transition from um, a market research uh, space where I was facilitating these um, really deep dives for some multinationals, and I was kind of poached while presenting a um, business strategy to to a health tech, uh, well, rather to a healthcare company. They ended up bringing me on. I created a strong business strategy for them. Spent about five years climbing the ranks, becoming their director of sales, and then my father actually uh, reared his head. He came to me and said listen um he at the time so he had retired after bell labs where um the initial um invention was was created um retired for a while and then Um, Eileen bush whose name is important, um, and I'll explain why, but she actually pulled him to Hopkins. She was the dean of the Whiting School of Engineering at the time, the first and only female dean at Hopkins. And she pulled him and said, Jim, listen, you know, you've, you've been retired for a while. The acoustic community needs you. Come back. So he's at Hopkins. And he receives a ch- or accepts a challenge from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to um, really create a a technology or a device that can um, head on. Uh, reduce infant mortality as it relates to pneumonia. So pneumonia being one of the leading causes of death of children under the age of five, but it's detectable and treatable. And so what Jim and his team at Hopkins were struggling with is, you know, if this is detectable and treatable, why are we losing about a million children a year? And the reality is, is that there just wasn't enough access to data, right? Or access to diagnosis. Because when you're thinking about community health workers on the front line, they're just simply not clinically trained. They're doing everything that they can, but you know, how much, um, at what point do you have the authority to make, you know, a diagnosis? And so um, Jim, my dad came to me and said, I'll listen, I developed in my lab this phenomenal technology, but what I'm so afraid of is that it will just die on the shelf like so many things um, in universities often do. Because while we have brilliant scientists in the world, the business acumen or really commercializing a product might not go hand in hand, right? So I was able to then pull all of the... um, all of the skills that I learned um, just through in this corporate health space, um, pulled all of that with me. I knew that I had the ability to scale a business. I knew that I could raise money. I knew that I could put a team together. So I said, you know what, let's just start with market research. That's what I know. Let's see, is there really a viable market for this? Sure, we can save lives, right? But what can we do? And what's the business case here? And that was a very quick, you know, unraveling. It was clear that, There was a need in low and middle income countries. But what was so astonishing to me was that there was such a need in my own backyard in Baltimore, right? When we think about the disproportionate impact um, of respiratory diseases in communities of color or in communities that are dealing with um, socioeconomic challenges, even here in the U.S., there has to be a way to augment care, right? And to expand the reach of a diagnostic. And so that's really what when I realized, okay, well, there's not only a need um, in low and middle income countries, there's a need right here. What can we do and how do we do it? And the, the fact that I just, you know, I just bought my first house. I was making more money than I ever had in my life. And finally, I'm like, I'm just going to jump off of this entrepreneurial diving board head first because I have an obligation, right? Like hmm. it would be my dream to make sure that my father was actually um beyond the distinguished work that he's done to, to have some type of financial pairing to that, yeah. right? So for me to be able to carry his legacy in that regard of just being, you know, an African American woman who didn't start, I'm not a physician. I'm not a you know traditional scientist, but I'm here because of this skill set. That, that I've learned over time and my ability to just say, you know what, if it, if it comes to, it's not about the technology. It's about the team. It's about the access. It's about putting all of this together and really making it a powerful, comprehensive unit. And and in that, I think that, you know, of course, I deal with imposter syndrome being like, you know, this <laughs> 34-year-old chick who's like, I'm, I'm, I'm in these spaces, right? Exactly. And, um, and so navigating that has been certainly, um, I think one of the things that I've been most proud of, at least in the last year or so, is just really getting my footing about me in these spaces.
0: Mm. Very cool. And as a, there's two things particularly that I want to pull, possibly the third as well, if we have got time, but there's, there's a couple of things I want to pull out. The first one I think is motivation. I think, you know, as you quite rightly pointed out, jumping off the entrepreneurial diving board when you're at a point in your life where you're almost locked in by the paycheck. It was probably, it sounds like the last possible opportunity before the next pay rise that, you know, you probably could have taken that risk before that risk feels a bit too much before you've got too many dependents before life just throws you those curveballs, Right. It seems like that, that, the motivation seems to be something that comes up a lot people are intrinsically motivated by you know hitting goals for themselves they're extrinsically by by hitting them for others and it seems like you've got a mixture of the two you know with your with this desire to do it for yourself your family but also your father and that legacy as well as the the patients that are going to benefit you seem like to have that motivation and, and that kind of that drive for impact coming like left, right, and center, which, you know, is, mm-hmm. is always going to lend you towards that. Entrepreneurship is always going to be on the edges flirting with you whenever you've got that, that motivation, okay. right? Thank and you. I think the other interesting thing for me as well is I've written entrepreneurial training here because you talked about, you know, the two areas that you've worked in like prior, you know, market or two of them, market research and sales. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going ha- to have training to be an entrepreneur, like assessing the market will give you a a really good idea as to whether that is actually a really good idea and secondly sales you know being able to actually execute and sell one sell something to someone else ultimately those are two things that are absolutely crucial as entrepreneurs and you know one of the things I I remember when I was running the accelerators you know we, we saw so many decks and so many market analyses and so you know, if you, if you added a sort of VC said, said this to me once, you know, if I added up all the market sizes that I saw in a year, it'd go around the world like a million times oh or, God, or, or right? something, you know, and, it, yeah. and it's so yeah. true that, you know, if, if someone actually genuinely does the market research and estimates the market, does a, does a realistic competitor analysis that includes everyone and doesn't miss everyone, you know, it, it really speaks volumes when you go on to things like, as you say, raising money. And, and those are also things that you've done right in that corporate career. And it seems like you had the confidence to do it and yeah everyone's going to feel that imposter syndrome you know I'm 34 too you know dipping (laughs) it's I I feel that I get it um but but you know you've you've lent in and 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 fair play to you I think the other interesting thing for me in your background was the 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 political science element and (laughs) You, you described the psychology behind motivation yourself, you know, figuring out how people are motivated, I assume yeah. in politics and, and how they, you know, things like that. But again, just the psychology of people, the psychology, you, I'm sure that is translatable to the psychology of customers and the psychology of consumers yeah. and all those different things. And so it is a super interesting background for me. Um, yeah, in- incredible, incredible entrepreneur training. So tell me, tell me about uh, Sanavi Labs and t- tell me about, when you got the idea and how you kind of converted that idea into reality?
1: Yeah, I, I, (laughs) you know, sometimes you don't realize it's happening. I don't think that I could draw a, you know, a fine point or put a fine point to exactly like the when, you know, because I think But that is a good point. Sorry to interrupt. That is a good point
0: that I think a misconception is that these brilliant entrepreneurs are just walking down the street one day yeah. and they all of a sudden have this, <laughs> right. this idea that's going to, you know, change everything. Right. And all of a sudden they wake up the next day and they're like, they've raised them $250 million. Yeah. And now all of a sudden they're, they're a billionaire. Like it doesn't right. actually, it doesn't actually work that way. I think the, yeah. what was it? What was it it's, there's a common phrase, isn't there around, you know, <laughs> that the average overnight success has actually been doing it for 10 years. Um, There you go. (laughs) that's
1: That's it. That is so, I mean, spot on. Because it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that, you know, for us or for me, it's having this conversation with my father, understanding, I think the real moment was when we were thinking about what one device had the potential of um, doing in a community and Mm -hmm. that was crazy to us was just thinking that you know we have people who are every day choosing to just give their lives to helping and supporting other people looking for nothing in return but just to be able to and I mean, and there's so much in return, right? And saving a life, influencing a life or, or reshaping a community and helping it become more sustainable by simply allowing their people to, you know, live a healthy life. So when I recognize the impact of one, like, you know, small, tiny device, you think, okay, well, what are the obstacles between me and that? And And is it really something feasible that I can accomplish, right? Let me look at other people in this space. Who are these other founders? Who are, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, it's like Roche and it's 3M. And I'm like, well, I'm not them. I can't be them. How do we build? And and we always feel kind of, you know, inferior. We're like this team of of a core team of six and we're all you know lock in step trying to conquer the world but when you compare it to the giants and you're internally thinking about what to do next and can we really um do this thing right what that's i think the clicking moment when you finally are I think you just realize it, right? Like you're in the thick of it and you're like, oh my God, like this is actually happening. We're actually doing it. So for me, I think that the aha moment of it, of, of the click and knowing that it was happening was when I was sitting around and had four people at, the, at, at my table who were all willing to quit their jobs work for free and get this done. And I'm like, shit, like something's going on here. Yeah. Like we have something because it's not just me. And I think that you have to believe it first. You have to understand it first. It has to come from a place that is going to keep you going when when it seems impossible. But also frankly, like it has never seemed impossible to me or anyone on our team because we've dedicated our lives to it. So it's like, it's an inevitable thing, right? Like to go from, oh, also going from the lab to commercialization, we should absolutely talk about because whoever thinks that, out of a university basement, you're gonna be ready to go the next day and say, let's package this up and put it on a shelf. You know, just take take a beat and really recognize also what that lift looks like and if you're ready for that that mission, right? And so for me, it was knowing that if I do this the right way that not only can we dominate in the respiratory space is like a company led by a very diverse team shifting the the paradigm of like what it looks like to be a med tech CEO, what it looks like to have a med tech respiratory company. Like we are a completely different Group of of uh, colleagues than I think um, any other very few other med tech companies have it, and that was also a critical component, right, to shift what med tech looks like, but also to impact these communities as quickly and as um, efficiently as possible.
0: So, tell me what the product is, and tell mm-hmm. me how you built it. Mm-hmm.
1: So Felix is a. I want you to think of a stethoscope, right? A um, digital stethoscope. Let's say that. Okay, let's let's actually back it up. So Felix <laughs> is just Felix is a device like a stethoscope that, but doesn't require a trained clinician on the other end. So essentially, what we've done is miniaturized and stuffed a doctor into a <laughs> easy to use device. So. We have these intelligent um, algorithms that have the ability to identify abnormalities in, um, in, in respiratory patients. So all you do is place the device on your chest, just like a physician would place a stethoscope on your chest. Instead of that doctor listening, the AI is working in real time to establish what exactly is going on. Yeah, so we um, differentiate crackles and wheezes, um, the power and the severity of them. So Really the goal here is to imagine putting the device in the hand of a community health worker, allowing them on the front line to put Felix on the chest of a patient and quickly determine is this pneumonia, is this asthma, and then from there being able to move forward with an appropriate intervention. And then on the other side, when you're thinking about, we actually have two other spaces where I think use cases are really helpful in explaining the the device. So we also have a clinical component, right, the Felix Pro, which actually does come with A headset that allows a physician in clinic to be able to reduce some of the subjectivity that's often associated with auscultation. I can't tell you how many doctors I know, and I'm sure that you'll be able to speak to this, that'll say, you know, in training, auscultation was, you know, a joke to me. I had no idea what I was hearing. Mm. I I don't even auscultate when I'm seeing patients, you know, but it is the, um, it's such a widely used diagnostic tool, right? It's affordable and it's effective, but it, it has so much subjectivity associated. So what we wanted to do in clinic in real time was to confirm whatever diagnosis you were calling out, right? Instead of having to send for x-rays, send for ultrasound. And then for the chronic respiratory patient in the home, what we're concerned about are asthmatic patients, COPD patients who are prone to having exacerbations and ending up in the hospital. I mean, asthma is the leading um, cause of hospital admissions in pediatrics in Baltimore, right? We have, it's just running rampant. And and the reality is that we need to focus on control and management at home. So having a Felix and being able to just reduce that uncertainty of a parent who's, you know, looking at their son, not sure if he's getting ready to have an asthma attack. How do we really, how do we include like uh, objective physiological data into like your own care routine at home. And, and so really we were with this device, it was so, we were so intentional in versatility when we were designing it, because what we knew was, you know, if we have the hardware, we can put any, we can push from anywhere, any software into the device. So if you are, you know, in a house and you have an asthmatic son, but a COPD ridden grandmother, can we do this all in the same place? And, and the answer is yes. And that's what was so important to us was to empower people at home and people in just non-clinical, untraditional settings, non-traditional settings to really have that ownership and power. So it's easy to use. And I mean, when we were developing it, it took about four years for our cto ian who is finishing his phd right now actually in my father's lab he has i mean the iterations, the time the money spent my god like (laughs) if we could have thrown it out 27 times we would have but every time we're like we're so close it's so close it's right there and so you know that that's a good feeling of powering through all of the technical challenges that come with you know, and that's also a difficult, right? A lot of people will go the hardware route and say, this is all I'm doing. And a lot of people will go the software route, but for us to do both on a very tight budget was asking a lot of our technical team, but they did it. And, and I couldn't be prouder of them.
0: I was actually going to be my first question about the hardware versus the Mm -hmm. software. Is it, is it both? Is it one or the other? Are you looking to do different bits, but yeah, doing both. I mean, fair play. Um, where do you see the where do you see most of the value going forwards actually in terms of the Mm -hmm. hardware or the software because i I get in these conversations a lot where people just tend to say well i have been recently where people just tend to say well the value is going to be in the in the software ultimately is that is that how you see it
1: you know it's interesting for a lot of um for in a lot of cases yes i do Mm. think that software is really a strong suit it makes sense it's it's flexible, right? Mm-hmm. But with the, but for us. Um, because we are so focused on acoustics and that's such a key component to the success of um, the accuracy of our algorithm or the ability for us to actually transmit this information, record and store it in a meaningful way. For us, hardware couldn't be compromised, right? Because it was, it is an essential piece. And so I I think that our technology hinges on that. and, And from a business case standpoint, it is actually to our benefit, right? but um, because it's required. And so as we pursue this North American reimbursement route, um, we're in a position where more often than not, software still delayed in approval and coverage. So in us combining both, it's a bit of a straighter shoot to um, commercialization and our ability to just, you know, generate, um, not even just revenue, but just to get the device, for the device to be approved and out. So actually... Um, for our FDA submission, we actually decoupled the hardware from the software yeah. for a faster, more expedient approval.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I actually answered one of my other questions, but I'm interested now in the tech itself. So yeah. in terms of how this solves problems for clinicians, for hospitals, for health systems, for, you know, the developing world things like that, does it, does it then essentially create A diagnosis? Does it give? Does it give a diagnosis, or does it give advice? Does it, you know, in your example about it being used in the home, is it sending insights to somebody who reads it, who looks at it? How does that all fit together into a system which actually solves a problem?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So for us, the data is integrated into all of our EMR systems, all of our electronic health records. And so, yes, so in some cases, so when looking in low and middle income environments where we need to make a decision um, or we need to rely, I think, a bit more on supportive tools, we are um, suggesting the presence of, um, you know, in, in the case, in that case, specifically pneumonia, right? Yeah. And we're so it's working advice really rather hard. than
0: diagnosis. Right. Yeah. And we're
1: working very hard on TB as well um, for our low and middle wow. income partners, and that's going to be tremendous. Um, But then when you switch over into, um, you know, the home use here in North America, it's more of a um, severity check-in, right? Of The whole care team is aware of these high-risk and so they're alerted when that patient is outside of the parameters that, that would otherwise be considered normal I assume normal they set the them.
0: parameters as well, so they're their parameters. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: personalized, but what our goal is, as we pursue breakthrough um, designation with the FDA, is to actually have the diagnostic classification for the indications and disease states. Okay. So that's what we're working towards. Mm. Right now we're in a position to um, to be, to guide when it comes to severity and we power. But when, um, we look at an actual diagnosis, I think that we're probably about two years out from being able to stand firmly on that.
0: It's interesting though, isn't it? Because it, it is going to change things slightly. It is going to be quite the device, quite the tool when people can start trusting it because, As we all know, and as we all want, if we're in healthcare, we want care to be closer to the community. We want decisions to be made closer to the community to enable more care to more people, cheaper care to the masses. Everyone benefits, right? The closer that care can actually get to the community and diagnosis is obviously part of that. The fact that you have to go from the community, the vast, huge, enormous community to the tiny little diagnostic room, there's obviously a bottleneck um yeah. in that and there's a and then there's a queue and a waiting list and that's in the in in the high income countries in the low income countries it's it's a different problem in that mm-hmm. there are just not the healthcare professionals able to do it and so by as you say equipping mm-hmm. non clinically trained people with the ability to diagnose it again just becomes a better health system because i imagine that you've done a lot of work behind, you know, the sensitivity and the specificity that the, you know, both being, being as important as each other. And I think that's when it becomes interesting because I think, again, a few conversations that I've been in about this type of thing, you know, if it's in low income countries, then what you're going to do is overwhelm the system because it's just going to pick up all this extra stuff and like, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, no accuracy does not just mean more accuracy can actually mean less because you're telling the people that are fine. They are fine. And that's reassurance and that's all those other things. So actually it just means a more accurate system, a a more, more appropriate referral pattern, um, you know, all those different things, (coughs) excuse me. So, yeah, I I imagine those are criticisms that you get a lot if you're nodding your head. (laughs)
1: Yes, it's spot on because I think you said something so powerful in everything hinges off of trust right So when you're just thinking about even entering a community or showing and, and introducing a new device or a new method and then expecting people not only to be comfortable with something that they've never seen before but then to trust the result of what it shares i mean there's a lot of work to be done across the board for us to really just build not regain the trust that I think has been lost in some ways in some communities when it comes to not only medical devices but just therapeutic treatments. so I think it's important you know that we we double down on building community around introducing new technologies in a very um honest and transparent and safe way
0: I completely agree that trust that is huge I think yeah. we we're at a point I think with this type of device, remote monitoring, whatever you, however you want to kind of package it up, but, but we're at a point where I think it could scale. It could go either way, but it, it could, one yeah. of the, one of the outcomes I think is that it could scale. Um, and I think the, the devil's in the detail with a lot of this stuff, which is why I ask the questions and I'm interested in, you know, the actionable insights that this creates, who actually reads it? Where does that go? Like, how does it fit around the system? And it seems to me that the longer this has gone on, there's not a one size fits all model. It is about, as you've kind of put it, you know, enabling those clinicians to set the parameters, to build the system that they want to give them the options, but to do it in a way that they can build the trust in the tech themselves if they want to. They can try it with a small population. They can increase that. So, you know, and, and I think that's the way that it, that it has to be done just simply because mm-hmm. at the end of the day the, the clinicians are accountable right and it's yeah. it, it can all go wrong so quickly and then trust mm-hmm. trust takes a long time to build but it can it can disappear very fast so especially when you're when you're doing things like diagnosis, but which which I can imagine and I can really respect the fact that like you've got a device right now that works I can tell I know that but you're saying mm-hmm. it's going to be 2 years until you're comfortable saying yeah. that it's for diagnosis right and and that's the thing right and being so candid like that is important because that's how the technologists and the entrepreneurs are going to build the trust with the clinicians. And, you know, that's the line that I've walked for, uh, for many years now. And I know that those, those two groups, the trust is coming. It's, it's building. It's, and to be honest, clinicians are becoming technologists, technologists are becoming clinicians. It's it's a super interesting time, right?
1: It's a phenomenal time. And, you know, one of our entry points that's really interesting because we were like, all right, how do we go against the grain? I've worked with, you know, physicians for the, you know, for over a decade and understanding their behavior and how, you know, we're all, um, we believe when we have worked very hard in learning and honing a craft that we know the most about the space, right? And so there's a very delicate dance that has to be done when you're introducing something that's meant to enhance um, workflow, right? Or enhance the capabilities of a provider. And so for us, we thought the best approach would be to start with medical students, right? If we are expecting um, to really make this push and, and blend technology into spaces for efficiency, then we have to start, I think, at the beginning of your journey in the space. And so we're kicking off a pilot with Cornell Medical School in the spring where they'll have the opportunity to start training with Felix. And and we're excited to see the way that the, pre- the, the, the presence of Felix influences their ability to learn and, and the speed in which they do. So it'll be really interesting because, you know, it does. It comes down to trust. It comes down to familiarity and also just exposure and i think that it'll it's it's a great way to it's a great entry point
0: mm. i think it is a very cool educational tool <clears throat> excuse me yeah I, I do think it's a very cool educational tool as well i think um j- just the nature of it the the quick feedback yeah. the ability to guide you towards something and and you know being software you could uh, I'm sure there's plenty of things you can API to uh, make that a very yeah. cool educational tool, which I'm sure you're looking into, but you mentioned a medical school. You've got lots of different partners. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine lots of different investors and, and various different bits and bobs. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me about some of the partnerships that you have, because there's a few very big names on your, on your website that I've seen.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think that those big names, those giants, those are the catalysts. Those are the, the the folks that really carry yeah. Uh, small little companies like ours that are trying to get our wings. And so we, we have um, had the, the privilege of being a part of Johnson & Johnson's J-Labs, and we are one of their portfolio companies, and just the guidance that we have received and the support that we've gotten from them is actually what then launched us into into positions to, you know, have conversations with the CEO of Philips, you yeah. know? I mean, and and that's just one thing that that is really important for me to highlight and hone in is that you know uh Brandon our chief business development officer he is the type of guy who if if you know president obama is in a room he's going to spot him run up to him and say listen here's everything you need to know about everything <laughs> that we have going on and let me know how there might be right. some synergy you know and and things like that that energy really is what pulls people to Tsunami and to our company, and then through that, we create and generate these phenomenal partnerships. So, you know, in the conversation that we were able to have with Franz, we were at GES, which is the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, which I encourage everyone to attend if you are in any way involved in any impact-based work, you know, um, from a, you know, um, from just a, a, yeah, just impact-based work, I think is the best way to, to, to categorize that, but um, it's held annually all over all over the world and it just pulls together so many people who were focused on you know a common mission of just improving the quality of life for everyone on the globe and so we're at this meeting in the Hague Franz is standing in this room Brandon sees him walks up to him and is like Franz listen We've got this amazing technology, and I think it would be perfect for Philips for the following reasons. And then this leads to a, a you know, conversation with their uh, CLC team um, where we are working through white labeling our device through them. You know, like wow. the fact that these conversations then lead to then, you know, building and building. And, and I think that that is so critical. We also um, are partners with Find DX, which is the uh, World Health Organization's kind of leading partner in diagnostics and just to be able to be invited to sit at that table with um some of the most brilliant minds in the space again let's throw imposter syndrome in there for a second pause evaluate (laughs) the room and recognize that you know we're really um that's kind of when when it clicks right that you're in a room talking to people that you've admired for so long and they're asking your opinion on on the direction of the space it's I, you know I, I lose my words <laughs> yeah. but, but it's, it's amazing yeah um and of course the bill and melinda gates foundation all of our work started from about a six million dollar grant from them so that's what kicked this party off and and we've been running ever since
0: six million dollars non-equity grant lovely right what a, what a start that is <laughs> goodness me yeah i don't think you get a
1: better starting block than that. no definitely not going. i suppose even for, you
0: know <laughs> i suppose for everything though for hiring for all sorts it gives you it gives you that profile that platform right okay. to, you know and i suppose the credibility the, the the proofing that hold on this is a thing yeah.
1: um yeah right like it, it, it's validated in that first kind of phase
0: yeah 100 what advice would you have for Entrepreneurs that are looking to do similar partnerships. I mean, you've mentioned obviously just have someone who's so extroverted they just just love running up to people. I mean, (laughs) that's actually not bad advice. I mean, that. I'm not
1: joking. I mean, it it sounds crazy, but like you know, when you think about what works, I think it's no okay. It's not just the person, right? He's just this extrovert. (laughs) It's definitely like who someone who under fully understands your mission and the quality of what it is that you're bringing to market and who is intelligent enough to then connect those dots and say okay, okay yeah, if we're here how do we strategize and take advantage of every room that we enter that's it right you divide you conquer and and you you're competing but we win right? Like that's it. And so that, that is, um, and, and so it all really hinges on the team that you surround yourself by and, and who you can identify who's willing to make the same sacrifices that you are, because you're not asking people to do a normal nine to five corporate gig. This is, you know, your entire life. It's your weekends, it's your car getting repossessed. It's you not knowing how you're going to survive and and the grit that comes with it and people you have to find people who are ready to, to fight with you, you
0: know? yeah 100 and also there's something in there as well actually about taking opportunity it seems mm-hmm. that you know opportunity is not equally given and, and nor is it equally taken by those that, that get it presented to them right i think so much about catching that spark or whether i've mixed metaphors right. there, catching the wave or whatever it is right yeah is when that wave does come along, actually being able to jump up and ride it, right? And I think that's the thing, you know, so many people you might have walked into that room with, you might not have come out with the same outcome. In fact, you were more likely not to come out with that same outcome. You, you, you're you actually, you know, whether you call it luck, creating your own luck or taking your opportunity, probably a mixture of all of them it is still about taking your opportunity when you can get it and having the people around you. that are a decent mix of skills and personalities that are going to make the most out of every single situation. I think that Mm -hmm. definitely seems like an important thing. But one, one thing that I want to sort of ask you about before we, before we wrap up is Mm -hmm. auscultation in general, right? So I think it's obviously been around for hundreds of years. Arguably oh, thousands. I don't know. But
1: hundreds, hundreds. Probably You're right. hundreds. <laughs>
0: probably hundreds. <laughs> I don't know. You could have put your ear on a chest and all that. <laughs> anyway, um, they
1: actually used like a like a tube, like a horn, really? like a like a yeah. It was interesting.
0: Crazy. I've heard a few rumors <laughs> yeah. about why this stethoscope was invented to um, so hear? that men I would more comfortably you. be able to listen to women's chests rather than just pushing their yeah. ear up against them and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's quite interesting. It's but my question is going to be around yours is an auscultation device Mm -hmm. there's also ultrasound technology and the two at the moment are existing in the same environments often with the same kind of use cases i suppose the narrative is that ultrasound is a a graduation from auscultation like listening um and that there are there is now this discipline point of care ultrasound, which is mm-hmm. in some ways trying to not trying to take over. I mean, it's not an entity that that has that consciousness to to do so. But there are certainly organizations that are peddling the narrative that that ultrasound is going to take over and get rid of auscultation and all these different things. I have a view but I'm interested in in yours on this because there are there are these handheld portable ultrasound devices that are connecting to iPhones and there are a couple of mm-hmm. different big examples of this um, that seemingly are competing for the same ground they're talking about the same value proposition putting mm-hmm. it in the hands of you know non-clinical workers and the AI will show on the screen what the problem is and all, all, all these different things right so I'm interested in your take on, on you coexisting with those companies. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, will you both find your place in different in different circumstances? Do you see one yeah. beating the other? Interested in your view?
1: I consider them to be complementary. We're yeah. actually looking and talking with one um, ultrasound company now and, and discussing a partnership of just having both in a care pack. Yeah. So um, for us, a couple things. So the first is just price you know, what, what we're looking at when we focus on low and middle income countries, even when you are bringing down the cost of ultrasound compared to what might be normally in clinic, you know, that still, that price point is still extraordinarily high when you're looking at any low and middle income country. So we'll just start there. The second is the delivery, right? Is that ultrasound still, even with AI is going to require a more refined clinical eye and understanding and the interpretation of the data that's being received. And for us, yeah, we don't. Our goal was to break down as many barriers and limiting factors as possible. And then the third concern, at least that I have, just around ultrasound and honestly X-ray as well, because there's a lot of effort in in imaging in that regard, also being uh, portable, which I find to be very challenging. But it is a it is something yeah. that's happening. Um, but when I think about ultrasound specifically and my pediatric patients, what concerns me the most is just unnecessary exposure. What we've seen um, over long-term exposure to ultrasound is tissue damage. And so when we're dealing with, yeah, ped specifically, I just can't imagine the need to repeatedly on a daily basis have, you know, ex- all, engage in any type of ultrasound with it's, mm. it's specifically a pediatric patient on a daily basis, I think is, is not recommended. Um, and so for us, it's about, time and efficiency and just really accessibility and so I think that we we will always exist in a very complementing way because um of course I'm inclined to for another layer of confirmation you know have someone call for an ultrasound or for an x-ray I think that there are always going to be opportunities and a need for both but when I think about rapid digital testing and triage I think that auscultation is the Quickest, fastest, and most effective way to
0: do that. I agree, and I, I you know, it's going nowhere. If it's be, if yeah. it's still around now, which it obviously <laughs> if, is, we're every, here. <laughs> every clinician, <clears throat> you know, doctor, clinical nurse specialist, you know, physiotherapist, they, they walk around with stethoscopes and they use them. Yeah, and we still do. It's a badge of
1: honor, frankly. Yeah, you know, but, like it's not going. It's anyway. <laughs> utility
0: because it, you can just there's no, there's, there's nothing between your ears and that patient's chest other than that tube. Right. And you can trust the signal that you're getting from it. There's nobody telling you what it is. You're using your own skill and experience to listen to that chest, make a decision an informed decision based on those things. And you take an action, which, you know, arguably, and it has done for me on the wards, you know, when you picked up Mm -hmm. um, a pneumothorax, the intention pneumothorax, you can just Mm -hmm poke them in the chest and relieve it and save their life right it's and right. you can do that based on what you've just figured out using a stethoscope that speed of ox of auscultation is is it's, it's never it's never so very, like it can't it can't if it if we put a man on the moon like 50 odd 60 years ago and we're still using stethoscope like we're still using <laughs> the technology is here it's around us but we're still going to talk to that stuff and i agree i think yeah. the point of care ultrasound is always going to have a place and i think it, it, it similarly is going to learn what that place is i actually wrote an article yeah. before was on this a while a, a few months ago but Ooh. i think it will yeah. find a, a, a place point of care ultrasound with I these new too. devices but i think You know, I I spoke to a pediatrician, actually, who walks around now with a point of care ultrasound around his neck where the stethoscope was, using it on all his patients. But yeah, at the moment in the minority, I imagine that will increase slightly. I think there'll be, there'll be people that lean towards it. There'll be people that won't. But I think auscultation is going nowhere is it and I think your ability to really serve the 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 low low income countries with a with a with a full solution that allows them to get that diagnosis is going to go an extremely long way um and I imagine you're excited for the future
1: I am I think the future is augmented auscultation because it's just removing unnecessary boundaries when it comes to just getting a quick diagnosis
0: I love it. I, I love what you're doing. I love the motivation. I love the, the values that you have, the way you're trying to do this across the world. It's often difficult, isn't it? Selling to investors, although, you know, <laughs> six million grand from Bill and Melinda Gates will go a long way to, to allow <laughs> sure. you that low income, uh, low income country function. But it mm-hmm. still is often difficult to convince other investors that, you know, we're still dedicated to doing both. We're, we're going to create a business yeah. out of this it can be difficult so I, I applaud you for being able to, to you know walk both of those lines and build the company that you are building I'm sure that uh you know standing on the shoulders of your father and and you know your ability to make waves in the space based on that yeah. I, I think you know is, is yeah equal parts fascinating and inspiring even for you know for, for me to listen to I think you know my father's African um you know yeah. he came over here and yeah, age of 18, he went to nursing school and, oh and became a nurse, and you know he then became an entrepreneur, and, and not in tech, but you know bought and sold nursing homes. But you know seeing that journey myself inspired me to do some of the things. So I get, I, I oh get where goodness. that inspiration motivation comes from, right? Yeah. Um, my my mother's Irish, hence I right. I look the way I do. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm white presenting. I believe is a phrase that people like to use now. But yeah, and no, so I get it. I get I get that motivation from someone that's worked yeah. so hard. And as you say, like someone like your father, who's invented something which has arguably changed the world and allowed me to use this microphone. <laughs> you know, wanting to give back to to create that financial award is incredible. And and I love the way you're doing it with uh, with the not too dissimilar. Uh, technology of auscultation so I love it. Um,
1: but listen, the, the
0: final question that I've got is: Do you have any asks of our audience? So obviously, we go out around the world. Um, we've got you know UK, US main audiences, but the rest of the rest of them are in the other 113 countries that listen. <laughs> Do you have any ask for them that we've got clinicians, we've got managers, we've got investors, we've got literally everybody that listens to this podcast from a health and technology perspective. So,
1: yeah, I think that the first thing um, is just for everyone to recognize the power of of their own individuality and what it is that they're bringing to the table. Right. Like we're facing. um As we're in the midst of this global pandemic, I think that recognizing the responsibility that we all have for our neighbors and for ourselves um, is so powerful. And and to recognize that we're not in this ever alone, but that we have to really work together and fight together in order to get to the other side of this. And um, that in times like these, some of the greatest innovations happen through collaboration that otherwise wouldn't have been possible, right? Because we're all connecting in these new and different ways. So the fact that I now have the ear of, people all over the world, I would say that if you are um, a medical student, or if you are a medical school looking to implement something new, please reach out to us. If you are an NGO or a community health worker, and you want a Felix in your hand, and you just just to try just to explore just to better understand the way that we work, reach out. Um, And if you're looking to partner, if you have a a complimentary device, reach out. Like, I think that everything about our company has come from those click aha moments where the right people have just come into our lives because they're compelled for one reason or another. So this is an open invitation that if you are compelled in any way to join our mission, hop on board because we're ready for you. Oh, and because of the most important thing that fuels this fire, we will be starting our Series A round in the next six months. So I also invite all investors to join the mission. <laughs>
0: Amazing. so it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.